the educational system and through media and entertainment, while they at the top have been trained in a completely different way as to the way things really work in the power structure that runs the world. There's nothing new in that. There's always been power structures. But at one time, they were more national in, at, uh, in ancient times and very national. And uh, sometimes when one city-state would go and rise against another, the people that go to find, to kidnap, basically, were the high priests that knew the system uh, to control those people on behalf of the king because knowledge is power. Today, it's done through very specialized universities. They cost an awful lot of money to get in. Back with more after this break. Language uh, can be used in the Pavlovian style, where it 
one word can trigger an emotion. And that's very, very important to understand how we're tricked into going along with things. I mean, who's going to argue with the word good, you see? And yet again, no one will ask, well, define good, because you'll, you'll find different interpretations of good, depending on who's saying it. And the media, of course, are the last ones ever to ask the right questions because they're in on the big agenda. They mustn't rock the boat. They all want to keep their jobs at the bottom. They know what their bosses want to hear. And they don't ask the pertinent questions, like when George Bush Sr. said um, he saw the New World Order coming into view. It was all very mysterious the way it was presented to the public. And um, not one single reporter asked him what he meant by it. Not one. This is the age, as I say, where nations are used uh, to wring out the last drop of cohesiveness and taxation out of them as they push towards internationalism. And it's so funny because before 9-11 came along, all you saw in newspapers across the world was the the word global and globalism. As though it was just a natural fact of existence, that's how it was. We were global, and everything was globalization. And that was a mantra for many, many years. And once to get something going, a new war phase, to to rush the the international phase through, it's all through the United Nations, uh, they, they go back, when they want to use you as soldiers and tax you for the wars, especially the U.S., uh, you're back to being a nation again. So they, they bring out the, you know, the, the, the familiar tribal emblems that you're, you're used to, the flag, and they drape themselves in the flag, and they stand like the Statue of Liberty and pose and all that stuff. Uh, and you don't think, wait a minute, this could be anybody here who's posing. It could be a Martian for all you know. But it doesn't matter. It is a desired effect in a Pavlovian style. So symbols that you see and words that you hear, and words are just symbols too, remember, to different languages. That will have an impact that, that trigger Pavlovian responses in you and you go along and never think about what's the real intent behind this. But those who run the system are perfectly, perfectly aware of what they're doing. And believe you me, once all this is over in the Middle East, if it takes another 20 years to, to dominate the entire region over there and then in Asia and all other countries, once it's all dominated... Uh, well, suddenly, well, let's go back. You know, one day we'll suddenly be talking globalism again. I'll be in the newspapers, globalist, globalism, that. And people will adapt, as they always do adapt, into the new system, as though it's always been that way. So nationalism is very handy when they want you to conquer and push for globalism. And once you're all global, they do away with nationalism again. It's a simple trick. And, and it works very well. So many changes have happened, as I say, since 2001. And they were already on the go when the first Gulf War broke out. That was the first big push into the new system because uh, organizations in the world, including the Project for a New American Century in the U.S., already had it mapped out, uh, all the countries that they'd have to take out to conquer and dominate and to seize their resources. And they started this with Afghanistan, to be followed with Iraq, then Iran, and then Syria as well. And we have lived through all of this as they go from one target to the next. So cunningly, often the public are left behind, and it's up to the media to tell them who they're fighting now, as they would always been fighting them exactly 
as George Orwell said in 1984. They keep changing their gun sights, but we're not supposed to notice. It's always been East Asia. We've always fought East Asia. And that also works very well, too. Now, you cannot have a country that that is a sovereign, independent country where, through treaties, and I've always wondered about the U.S., uh, through treaties which are legally binding, they can overrule every other law that you have on the books until you go into the, the beginning of the U.S. And remember, these guys were idealists at the start. They all belonged to certain fraternities, and they talked about an international brotherhood Benjamin Franklin actually put it in his writings and there in display at the Franklin Museum uh, you'll see where he said that I hope this federation of the states of, of America would be the beginning of a world federation and he said eventually to be ruled by 12 wise men 12 wise men and he wasn't alone in this belief that uh, the brotherhood of man would eventually dominate the world. And how it's done is by the signing of treaties, and that's why in the U.S. Constitution, uh, again, it's left kind of vague. Now, these guys were not stupid who had the Constitution and the Bill of Rights written up. A lot of them were lawyers. These guys are very careful with their words. And when they do want changes to be made possible in the future, they'll word it in such a way uh, that they can actually always do that very, very thing that they wish Lots of people are quite content in the beginning thinking, well, uh, the treaties were to do with the treaties of the, the U.S. states themselves. And that's how it would sound until you really can't look into it. But it's so vague, you no, know, it could mean anything. And we know that through the League of Nations and then on to the United Nations, that everything's been put into bondage through treaties we must submit to. It's, it's fascinating, too, to see that the U.S., and I've always seen this happening and, and coming, and I've said it for years, that the U.S., with the guns of America, will be turned on the whole world until it, it all succumbs unto, un, unto this world governmental system. And while they're finishing it off, this is exactly what's happening, they're pulling the rug from underneath your feet at home at the same time because they don't want the U.S. to be a dominant force when it brings in the New World Order. They want it to they want to bankrupt and heading towards third world poverty. Bank crashes don't happen by themselves. They're foreseen. There are people who keep the pulse on the bubbles that are out there all the time. There are oversight committees that know exactly what's going to happen. And they can encourage it to happen or they can delay it for as long as they wish. The the big banking boys, and it's so interesting to, hear, to see Rockefeller when he was thanking all the groups of reporters that attended uh, the various Council on Foreign Relations meetings. He said, he, th- he said, thanks for keeping it all secret all these years. All these years, he said, for not telling the public. It's far preferable that, that an, an intelligentsia and bankers decide the future of the world rather than leading it to, to basically the country's own free will and to the erratic roads they would take. That's, that's what basically he was saying, I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, so therefore, um, 
you, the bankers are heavily involved, the international bankers are heavily involved with bringing in this new world order. They run the foundations, they run the parallel government, they fund the parallel governments with their non-governmental organizations. They fund hundreds of other dummy front foundations that specialize in certain areas too. That's how it's really run, as Professor Carl Quigley said, that is the parallel government. If you're in a parallel government, you're not responsible to the public. You can get things done like Maurice Strong and Kissinger and Brzezinski behind the scenes and no eggs will get, will land on you. No eggs will land on you. You're not responsible, you get things done. Back with more after this break. I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just touching on some of the techniques that are used and how people react and how they behave. Every generation is born thinking they're going to live forever. Ask anybody about the age of 16, 15, and they'll tell you. They can't imagine. You see that blank stare. They, they can't imagine ever getting old and wrinkled, and they think they're going to live forever. And because of that, and because other things are acting on their bodies, uh, they're, they're not really interested in what's really, really happening outside of themselves. They can be motivated by professors in university to go off and fight for some cause or other for they see an injustice. And because they see things in very much black and white, no gray areas and things, they're so easily led to, to push for often the wrong things or things they regret much later. So they're always used... But we, our lives are, are so short. We, we blink through life, really. And uh, agendas that are risen out with a 100-year, 150-year, 200-year parts to them is nothing new. We find this technique was used, for instance, within the Soviet system and the League of Nations and the United Nations, and they still use it today, 50-year plans for a certain project, 20-year plans for another uh, 70 for another, and on it goes. And when we hear these numbers bandied about, we say, well, that doesn't affect me. Um, and that's how we simply take care of it. We, we, we hear it, but it, it bounces off us somehow. And we don't really think it's, it's real. But everything that you're hearing is going to be paid for by you and those around you. Because everything is a cost. And you're the only source of income that the big boys at the top have. Uh, slavery is a wonderful thing in many different forms because we, we don't realize that slavery at one time was considered quite normal uh, in, in ancient times it was a normal way in Greece and Rome so much so that at one time in, in I think it was Rome uh, it got so bad that almost three quarters of its entire population were slaves but in those days a slave had a kind of set work hours if you're really hard working maybe a, a bit manic and have a bit time to yourself you could acquire some money in a, in a side job. And a lot of the slave owners uh, came out of being slaves themselves, and they went into the only business that made sense to them because they knew all the ropes, and they became slave owners, so much so they had their own big monuments built to them when they ended up dying awfully, awfully rich. So I, that was accepted in those days, 
And when you were conquered by a city-state next door, uh, you were automatically subjected to them. The common folk were, were dispositely bought and sold quite easily, uh, while the elites of both sides tend to forgive each other, pay some tribute, and then intermarry. And we've had this system going on down through the centuries right up to the present time, because wealth marries wealth, always. But agendas for a world system were born also quite a long time ago using a slave system. It was Charles Galton Darwin, another inbred person, uh, related to Charles, who was completely inbred for generations with only one other family, because he believed in the master race even then. And uh, Charles Galton Darwin said in his book in the 1950s, now Charles Galton Darwin worked as a physicist on the atomic bomb project, so he, was a, he wasn't just another little theorist that liked cutting up bits and bits of bodies and eyes of toads and newts and all that stuff. He was into physics, and uh, he was the head of the British atomic energy firm at that time. And he wrote his book, The Next Million Years, and he talked about the need to cull off and sterilize all the inferior types in, in Britain, starting with Britain, and going across the world, so that the ones who, who should have the world in the future to themselves would certainly have it, without all the useless eaters eating up all the excess grass out there in the fields. So he wanted to cull them off and have the right to do so, and he put it forth in a, a sort of academic-style format to try to persuade you why it should be. And he got accolades from all the major media in Britain. If you have a copy of that book, try to get one in the hardcover with the original, uh, saw, you know, the, the little binder over the top of it, the slip jacket, and look at all the accolades they had from all mainstream media. Saying, yeah, this guy said it like it should be said, and at last it's come out into the light and all that stuff. Because they truly believed that uh, in a post-industrial era, which they saw coming, uh, they wouldn't need all the working classes for, for a start. But he also said there's always been slavery in one form or, or another. And uh, whenever you're taxed on, on something, you're a slave. So that's your, that represents your labor. And then under the legal definitions of, of slavery, it's using someone's labor, generally against their will. So you call it a tax, so you take it off in a money form, and you don't think of it as being the same, but legally it is still the same. The same with property, you either own something or you don't own it. If you have to pay tribute to a government or anybody else, and they can come and lean on you and put in the heavies, that's just a mafia, it's called extortion. It's the same thing, you're still a slave, you see. So we've accepted all because it's given, they're given different terms to it. And the odd thing is, the more folk that go along with it, the more you think it's normal. Uh, again, that's the coward instinct and in the, in the herd mentality. Uh, that the people who do nothing for all their lives will, will do. It's a herd instinct. They need someone to guide them, and then they'll generally go along with them if they think they'll win. They'll, they won't go near them if they think they might not win. They'll always follow the leaders, generally when the battle's almost over. That's the history of humankind, unfortunately. And the big boys who rule the world know that. A more sophisticated form of slavery, Charles Galton Darwin said. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
cutting through the matrix, just explaining how slavery has always been here in some form or another, and simply by altering the technique of the implementation and the usage of slavery, you don't recognize it for what it is. But those at the top who deal with legalities and academia understand it perfectly well. They also know it's essential that the public are kept in the dark for as long as possible, preferably forever. And as Charles Galton Darwin said in his book, The Next Million Years, we're in the process of creating a more sophisticated form of slavery. We've seen all the big mass movements to feed the world and this and that and the other over the years. And then songs like We Are the World all came out. And these were all politically endorsed and foundation-funded projects to get us all into this idea of a sort of equality, a a very vague, it's always very vague equality because they don't want you to realize you're going to be equally all poor at the bottom, which is the majority of you when they do away with all the middle classes, which is the intention of this big system. And that's why the UN has said for years, every 10 years, so, oh, the the gap between the the poor and the very rich is widening, like like it was a a, a rah-rah thing, you know. It seems there's never a mention as to this is going to end up with major crisis or there's never a comment made to it. Whenever you hear these statements by the UN and there's no comment, you know it's part of the agenda. Uh, for instance, so is the, the, the rate of uh, sterilization going on uh, and infertility going on across the world every year. They publish the figures every year and the tells were down to about 85% loss of sperm count in the Western male. And there's no comment there. Technically, you think it'd be a crisis because something's obviously causing it until you start thinking and say, well, they know what's causing it. It is the agenda, and that's why there's no comments, <laughs> and that's why there's no crisis. But most folk don't think they wait for the media to think for them, and that's why they go to their graves, never ever knowing any reality at all of what they live through. Never ever knowing anything about reality. I've met guys, lots of guys that were fought in different wars. I had a grandfather that was in two, both world wars. And I think he went to his death never knowing. Never knowing uh, the reasons for the wars. He never read back to find out all the information that had come out since the the different wars, as to the the different uh, powers behind it, the funding, all that kind of stuff. The big agenda, the great agenda, the UN, nothing. And I think he was pretty typical of his age. And every age is much the same as the last. We we live in ignorance. And what's amazing, too, is that ordinary people are always so willing to go off and fight for anybody's cause except their own, especially the U.S. Really, the U.S. is always off fighting some war, but they won't fight any at home for their own rights. Why is that? It's because, you see... The, the, the bulk of the populace within a military or just like my granddad they join up for different reasons and they do what they're told their job is not to think it's to do what they're told to get paychecks and uh, have some fun in their off time and uh, that's it their job is not to think or to find out or discover or to philosophize about anything and that's why 
they can always recruit guys every year, especially when the economy is bad. It's a fantastic time for recruitment. And, and, and then go off in expansionist wars. Now they're allowing foreign police to, to come into the U.S. and work with impunity. Uh, that's why, again, you've got to watch these little amendments that are often more important than the original laws. This article here is from No One Has to Die Tomorrow, and it was first in the Beaufort Observer on the 28th of December 2009 and published in Agenda Police State. It says, last week as the nation's attention was focused on the Senate's debate on health care reform, President Barack Obama signed an, an amendment to Executive Order 12425. It's only one paragraph long and few would pay much attention to what its effect is, but it's got enormous implications. Here's the background. Generally, foreign military and police organizations are restricted from operating in the United States without oversight by uh, the CIA, FBI, Department of Defense, State Homeland Security, or through some other arrangement that makes such operations subject to U.S. authority. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12425 that allowed the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, to operate in the U.S., but generally subject to the same laws that restrict the CIA, FBI, and other federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. Specifically, Interpol agents were not immune from being prosecuted from violating American laws. One of those laws is 42 USC AS1983, which prohibits law enforcement authorities from violating an American constitutionally protected rights. Presumably that does not apply to Interpol as a result of this executive order President Obama has just signed. The effect of Obama's amendment is to give them immunity from violating any American law. So here's foreign cops. Do you realize Interpol is a private organization? Rothschilds are the ones that started it up years ago. So now they can come into a country, do whatever they want, uh, and violate American law something that you get locked up for, or one of your own cops will get locked up for, but they're free. They've got a sort of diplomatic community. Agents of Interpol will now presumably have the same protection that foreign diplomats have while in the country. It's that uh, immunity that has been used by other countries to spy on the United States. And that's true. This arrangement, for example, now would make it possible for an American citizen being seized by Interpol agents and taken out of the country outside the reach of American courts and the rights they would enforce, most notably habeas corpus or the right for a judge to review a person's detention. The extent to which Interpol would be exempt from American extradition laws now becomes questionable. Likewise, Interpol agents could seize property, including firearms, without search warrants and conduct other warrantless searches. They can break into homes and businesses to search and seize records without fear of prosecution either criminally or civilly, in short, the powers that Interpol would have by being immune to U.S. law is virtually the same as martial law provides. Interesting. Eh? I mean, it's interesting how this is all... And this is not by some kind of... Mis oh, they didn't notice what they were signing. Uh, you'd be surprised again at the general population how they'll vaguely listen to stuff and vaguely give excuses about it and, and never get the point of anything. But uh, you, you better believe it, there's been big debates in some high level 
on giving Interpol these kind of rights and laws. And it will also go through the human uh, rights courts and the, and the human criminal courts of the United Nations as well. It's all connected, all connected. You better believe it. And no matter how often you go into the past to show people how megalomaniacs have uh, jumped at the Darwinian belief of superior types and inferior types and supermen and all that stuff, always, of course, believing they're, they're part of the upper ranks, obviously. And we see the aftermath down through the history pages that nobody bothers reading anymore because I think that's in the past. These things that happened in the past never happen again. That's their big mistake. And that's why they always do happen again on even worse scales. But you still get little articles popping up here and there about the great um, sterilization project that was put forth by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation who helped bring sterilization into the U.S., and, in fact, the Rockefeller Foundation became a model for, for the Nazis to build on. The Soviets were already doing it as well because they were way ahead of Germany long before Nazi Germany came along and mass cullings. In fact, the Germans went, and they were friendly with the Soviets, who so went to them to find out how to do mass cullings. I used to say you never saw many people in wheelchairs in the Soviet system think about it and this article here is from the uh, newsobserver.com it says December the 27th modified December the 26th foundation to help sterilization victims still in the works this is in the US Uh, it also is part of the Associated Press it says Rally, state officials are still working to set up a special foundation that could eventually be used to pay reparations to North Carolinians who were sterilized by a state program. Uh, lawmakers set aside $250,000 in this year's budget to establish the foundation. I wonder, I wonder if I'll ever dish anything out. Generally, they wait till everybody's dead before the. It was the same thing that happened in Canada when Bill Clinton signed the deal that allowed all the tainted blood from the prisoners. They knew it was all tainted and infected to be imported into Canada through Connaught Laboratories. Connaught Laboratories, by the way, was set up as part of the Bacterial Warfare Department of Canada in World War II. But that's just little things aside. Um, the way Canada waited until uh, pretty well everyone who got contaminated blood was dead, and then they paid out about half a dozen survivors. That's generally what they always do. They wait ten years more, just forestall it, forestall it. For we waiting for, for all this time to get reparations, and they're still waiting. So getting back to the North Carolinians, it says, but the Winston-Salem Journal reports little of the money has been spent six months into the budget year. There's not an office for the department yet. There's no hiring. It's all still in progress, said Jill, Jill Lucas, a spokeswoman for the, the North Carolina Department of Administration, where the foundation will be housed, will be housed. North Carolina sterilized more than 7,600 people under a eugenics program between 1933 and 1973. This is the one that uh, Adolf modeled his one after, too, when they started um, sterilizing and then killing um, everyone who had a mental disorder or there were, child, there were children who were deformed in such a way or even thought could be deformed 
uh, or their IQ wasn't up to snatch. The program was intended to keep people considered mentally disabled or otherwise genetically inferior from having children. The program targeted the poor and people living in prisons and state institutions. While officials obtained written consent, many didn't know what they were signing and were essentially coerced, state historians said. The state has estimated about 2,800 victims of the program are still alive, and there are several proposals about how to compensate them. Probably those proposals will be uh, let them die off and we'll give them a cheap pine box to get buried in. Because that's generally what... You see, it's the real world. They don't give a darn about people at the top. We're nothing at the top of the body. We're cannon fodder. It's interesting, too, that see the Rockefeller guys were the guys who started that whole thing off in the U.S. across different U.S. states. That's only one I'm talking about here. And there's old man Rockefeller today, you know, the third generation or whatever he is today, but 94 years of age, trotting the globe up on YouTube and Google, still giving lectures to the New World Order boys on how they need to cull off all the, all the useless eaters. There's just too many people, you know. Yep. Nothing changes. And folk don't feel the hair on the back of their head creeping up. It doesn't happen. They've been neutered. Neutered. And you know what happens too when big things happen and big laws are passed and the world goes into panic and governments ram things through, they always say, How did this happen? How did this happen? Like they never saw it coming. As you play with cartoon figures and virtual reality and all the rest of it, I wonder why they never see it coming. This article here is from National newsobserver.com and it's published uh, Monday December 28th it says Cobble talks up his no pension pledge very interesting article really although most folk won't be bothered about it I suppose US representative Howard Cobble has just about given up on trying to abolish congressional pensions but Cobble who is 78 a Greensboro Republican and a longest-serving member of the state's congressional delegation says he'd like to see others follow his pledge to refuse his pension. CBS Evening News featured Cobble in a segment last week about former members of Congress who were convicted of crimes and are still eligible to receive their pensions, some amounting to six figures a year. Cobble and U.S. Representative Ron Paul, a Texan Republican, are the only members of Congress who say they won't accept their pension Cobble said his salary is plenty, and, and it's true enough, they're going for four or five, you see, there's a whole thing, even with the founding of the U.S., which one of the last places to be founded as a country. And people used to go in to serve the country. Now they're going to serve themselves in every way they possibly can, over the table, under the table, wherever. But, but uh, they did it with a salary often. They'd leave whatever they were doing for four years, and, and go back to what they worked at. Now they get a massive uh, paycheck plus a great big um, expenses account. They live like kings for four or five. I think if they make it for four or five years, five years in, in Canada and Britain and elsewhere, they get a lifetime's pension index related to the cost of living. Isn't that amazing? I mean, 
Why? The rest of the public can't get... We can't say, OK, I'll work in this supermarket and I'll stack the shelves for four years. If I make five years, I'll get a lifelong pension. Well, why, is it, why did they get this kind of perk? You see, that's called corruption. When you have anything like that in government, you're already corrupt. You're already corrupt. It's no different than a heroin addict getting a taste of this stuff. They're going to say, well, I think I'll give it up on Friday when my term's up. Anyway, Cobble says, I figured taxpayers pay my salary for his work time, and that's what it should be. So it's not a bad salary, he said, and I figured that's sufficient. Let me fend for myself after the salary is collected. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But the psychopaths are the ones who come in the majority and climb up the ladder. The real sharks. They're not, they're not exceptionally intelligent, but they have a cunning. There's a difference between cunning and intelligence. Tremendous, tremendous difference. You don't have to have a high IQ to have a cunning in you. They can always see the opportunity. And these guys, these guys, the majority who go in, they see it right away. Now, I'll go to Steve in Indiana. There's a call coming in. Are you there, Steve? Alan, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, hold on, I'll talk after this break. through the matrix and we'll go to, again to Steve from Indiana if he's still there Alan always a pleasure how are you doing I'm hanging in there that's all we can do uh, uh, last week you talked about shortwave radios yeah and, and what, what I'd like to have is your take on uh, is the information that's coming over their, uh, their transmitters are they censored like uh, most of our stuff is over here uh, I'll tell you what happens with shortwave there's two systems in a shortwave, there's a ham operators uh, that for anyone can apply and go through a little bit of training or get a license and broadcast. Right, that's me. Yeah. Uh, and that's worldwide. And a lot of ham enthusiasts talk to themselves across the world. Um, you'll find more information from across the world than you will within the U.S. The, who pro and the U.S. probably has more shortwave ham guys than anywhere else. They're so damn politically correct, they're scared of losing their licenses by mentioning anything that matters. Right, <clears throat> right, yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm one that does not fit in that category. Yeah. But every, every once in a while, I will listen to stuff like, uh, like uh, Radio Havana. Yes. Well. And, and I, I try to point out to people, I said, well, if the communists were your enemy, mm -hmm. why do we have uh, <clears throat> you know, a, a torture chamber over there, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because see, all governments have a shortwave station, right? And they broadcast. I used when I was small, um, I had a kit and I built one that actually works, a shortwave radio for receiver, and uh, I could pick up Radio Moscow. Right, right. And what actually amazed me was Radio Moscow was had the same format of giving news 
and the daily routine of news as the BBC did. In fact, they were identical. They'd say the Ministry of Agriculture has declared blah, 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 and the Ministry of this has declared, and that's where you got in Britain. And I thought, that's where I caught on to the the fact that they were so similar, uh, too similar, in fact. Hmm. But I also knew that uh, they could cut out, some countries could block out a shortwave broadcast coming in from a, a banned nation. And there was a sort of war on to get the better shortwave radios or um, guys fixing them themselves to get better reception because you could at least hear other points of view across the entire planet. Um, uh, right, right, and that's right. so interesting for me uh, to, to realize that um, there, were, there was also so many different... You often found, for instance, where Britain was, was meddling in some other countries' affairs that never reached the national news in your own country. Same in the U.S., um, you'd hear all these things that you'd never heard of, or big, big corporations who wanted the oil here or something. So you'd all these different reports that you never heard on mainstream at all. But what happens is all the big journalists for every big newspaper who do foreign affairs, they all listen to shortwave all the time. Yeah. Right, because it's been my experience that it's, it's really easy to, uh, to listen to stuff, and the, the shortwave radios, they're very inexpensive. They're very inexpensive, and in the U.S., there are still shortwave Patriot radio stations that you can listen into in some of the U.S. states that give, again, a whole range of new ways of looking at things and a lot of information that doesn't hit the Internet. You know. Right, and, and with a lot of signals, it does not take much of an antenna to pick this stuff up because I've been doing this for more than 30 years. Yes, and in, I really fact, in fact, a little bit of copper wire just clipped to your main antenna uh, we'll, we'll do the trick. Absolutely. And, and I really think it would be advantageous for everybody's part if you came down to the States. I, I really believe that. Oh, that's definitely uh, in my mind, believe you me. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Alan, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Now, I'll talk to you again. Thanks for calling. So from Hamish, myself, and to Canada, we'll probably go to 20 below freezing, or zero, 20 below fr- uh, zero Fahrenheit tonight, or more even, like last night. It's good night from your God or your gods go with you. And I'm going to demand my share of global warming.